We are starting our Advent series today, Waiting in Hope, uh, an Advent in the Minor Prophets. And we're going to look each week at a different minor prophet. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to look at, at their message a bit of doom and gloom. But really what I hope to pull out of those minor prophets are the glimpses of hope, the slivers, the rays of hope that they have, the promises that they make in the minor prophets, many of which, many of which we have skipped over, many of which we, we are, are unaware of, many of which we, we maybe even have not, even as, as we've started reading through the Bible, we haven't got to the minor prophets. We, we, we got waylaid in, in, the, in the Pentateuch, or we got to the history books, and we just couldn't get all the way to the minor prophets. And so we're going to take some time to look at those in these next weeks. We're going to look at Amos today, the minor prophet Amos. And in this series, there is no shame in opening your Bible to the very beginning and looking in the table of contents. There's no shame in that at all. So, in fact, I even, I've, I've written out, it's, it's page 764 if you're going to use a pew Bible. That's the beginning of the book of Amos, and, and I hope you'll follow along today. We're going to look at a number of passages which will not be on the screen. They'll only be in your Bible or a pew Bible or maybe even on your device. It's page 764 if you're using a pew Bible. If you're just flipping the pages and you can't find it, it's found between Joel and Obadiah, the small book of Amos. If you're in Joel, go one more over. If you're in Obadiah, you went too far. It's a small book. It's one of the minor prophets. It's, they're not minor because they have lesser in message. We call these 12 books the minor prophets because they're smaller than the major prophets. They're smaller books. That's why they're hard to find. That's why it's okay to use your table of contents. This book, Amos, is written early in Israel's history. He's one of the earliest prophets. Jonah may have been the earliest written prophet, but Amos is the second earliest. He's probably writing sometime around 750 BC is when Amos comes on the scene. He's, he's writing, Amos comes on the scene approximately 200 years after David's reign. So you know, as, as God raises up King Saul and Saul fails as the king of, of Israel, David becomes king number two, the second king over Israel. And David's reign is, is the reign we, we talk about all the time. We, it's, the, it's the reign that the Israelites point back to all of the time. It's when God was glorified through David, a man after God's own heart. And the kingdom of Israel under David and then his son Solomon is at really the height of its combined glory. But David reigns and Solomon reigns. And then at the end of Solomon's reign, things begin to fall apart. Things begin to unspool. After Solomon's reign, in fact, the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's, there's two southern tribes, the, the tribe of Judah and the Levites. Those two tribes of the 12 tribes, they become their own nation. They're the southern part. They have the, they have the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel or was the capital of Israel. 
They have the city of Judah, where the t- or the city of Jerusalem, where the temple is. Uh, they, David was from the tribe of Judah. The Levites are the tribe of priests. And so they stay uh, in Jerusalem and with the temple. But the other 12, the other 10 of the 12 tribes, they, they leave. They create their own nation. They become a northern nation. And the tribe becomes split between Judah which has the Judah and and Israelite tribes, and then all of the ten northern tribes, and they go under the name Israel. And so from this point, after Solomon's reign, when the when the when the cities or when the when the nations split, the two northern tribes, Judah and and Levites, they become the tribe of, of or the nation of Judah, and the northern ten become the nation of Israel. And the king of Judah, the king of Judah at that point uh, is, is uh, Rehoboam, is who when, is the king when they split. The king at this point, when we get to uh, Amos, 200 years after David's reign, is Uzziah, is the king in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, was Jeroboam, the first, was the first king to take over the split country. And now, as we come to, to the time of Amos, Jeroboam II is the king over the tribes of Israel. Now, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. It's in the southern territory. The northern territory needed their own capital. So when they split off the original king, King Jeroboam I, he builds a capital city in the town of Bethel. And while he's there, he builds a temple. They need their own temple. They cannot no longer go to Jerusalem, to where they had worshipped before. And so he builds them a new place, Bethel. And he builds a temple there. And he, in fact, while he builds that temple, builds two golden bulls. He erects two golden bulls, or has two golden bulls erected there at the temple, so that the people of Israel have something to worship have something to worship. And now, while these two nations are in discord, while the the 12 tribes of of Israel are all broken apart into these two different nations with two different capital cities and two different kings, all all of that discord begins to happen, but both these nations have major times of prosperity, several times in their history, but during this time of Amos especially. They have major times of prosperity. Their, their territory, their borders are expanding. Wealth is being accumulated by the peoples of the country or at least some of the peoples of the country and things are really looking up for both the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Israel. But even while territory is expanding and wealth is being accumulated, idol worship in both countries is rampant and injustice especially among the poor is the norm for both countries and so that's the background of this book of Amos it's with those two countries that are split with this with rampant idol worship with great wealth with expanding borders with kings who can sit on their thrones and know that their reign is great or supposedly great. That we find this small shepherd from Tekoa, 
a border city right on the edge of north and south. He's actually on the south side of the line. He's from the tribe of Judah, but lives right on the border with the northern tribes. He's a shepherd. He's a, he's a fig farmer. And he gets called into service, and God begins to speak to him and then through him to the people of Israel. He travels north of the border, heads across into the land of those that are are now his enemies, and he heads north. And he begins his book, again, page 764, Amos chapter 1. He begins his compilation of, of letters and visions and stories that we find here. And it says this, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple was, the, the, the temple that, that Solomon built, the temple that, that if you remember when, when, when Solomon finishes it and they pray to God and God, his, his spirit moves into the temple, the, the fire shows up, the cloud moves into, the, and God's presence lives in the temple. God is always everywhere. He's omnipresent in all places at all times. But in the Old Testament, God makes his presence known that this is his home. And so Amos begins his book by sharing. He begins his prophecy by sharing the Lord roars from his home in Jerusalem. Remember, he's in the north kingdom. Amos is prophesying in the north. He says, this place that you cut off, this place that you left, Jerusalem, the temple, The Lord is there, and he roars against you. He roars like a hungry lion. You're reminded, at least I was as I studied this week, of of the story of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's book of Narnia, and the the main Christ-like character, Aslan the lion, if you remember that story. There's a, in in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that first book, There's a portion, you've probably heard it a number of times, where Lucy, one of the children, is hearing for the first time about Aslan, the lion, and says, is he he safe? And the beaver replies, he's not safe, oh no, but he's good. That's the picture here in Amos. God the good and perfect lion roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And this book of Amos is a roar of judgments from the good but not safe God. And he begins, as you look through there, we're not going to read all of these verses, but as you look even right there in Amos chapter 1, he begins with judgments against not Judah and Israel, but he begins with judgments about, about all of the surrounding nations, all of the nations that encircle the country of Israel. He has curses for Damascus. He has curses for Gaza. He has curses for Tyre. He has curses for Edom. He has curses for the Ammonites. He has curses for Moab. As you continue on through chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he even has curses for the country of Judah. And as the Israelites hear these curses, their thoughts are probably, 
yeah, oh yeah, God is going to curse all of these nations around us. And there's a hearty amen from the people of Israel. Until we come to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, we begin to see the judgment that comes on the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, For three transgressions of Israel, for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. He says, there's judgment for you too, Israel. And he goes on, he goes on for eight and a half chapters of judgment for Israel. Amos is telling the people of Israel, you, you have much. You have much and you think it's a blessing. You think that God is blessing you in your wealth, that God is blessing you in your peace, that God is blessing you in your prosperity. You think that it's a blessing from God. You have much, but you have been cursing the name of God. And this blessing that you think is a blessing is really an anchor that will sink your soul. Amos is clear that all nations will be judged. Every nation will have a judgment. Every nation will have their sin be paid for. You cannot escape. It's not just Israel and Judah It's Damascus and Tyre. It's the Ammonites. It's all, it's every nation in all of history will have their sin paid for. You cannot hide your sin. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans that we we see just in the creation, we see in the creation the perfect God and our souls cannot hide our sin. Our conscience cannot hide our sin. Our sin is not hidden. No nation's sin is hidden. We're without an excuse. Our sin is an affront to the holy God. And there is no escape. There's no escape for Damascus and Gaza. There's no escape for Judah and Israel. And there's no escape for us either. For you Or for me, there is no hiding our sin from God. If the book of Amos makes anything clear, it's that there is a judgment for all, a judgment that's coming for all. He continues on through the book of Amos. If you get to chapter 3, there's a little bit of a turn. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought out of this land of Egypt. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, You only have I known of all the families on the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. All of these nations are going to be judged. Every nation is going to be judged. But he says, But you, Israel and Judah, 
But you, Israel, the people that I brought out of Egypt, I have known you. I have shown myself to you. You know me better than anyone, he says. I gave you the law that we looked at in Deuteronomy. I told you how to follow me and obey me, and I told you what would happen if you didn't. You, he says, you have had the great blessing, and I have called you to be a great blessing. But instead, but instead of taking the great calling and the great responsibility that I have given to you, you instead are going to receive the great consequences. When the day of the Lord comes, which we'll see in just a moment, Israel will pay because they knew better. They knew he was the God of Israel and Judah. I've only known you out of all the families on the earth, and so I'm going to punish you for your iniquities. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs and a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. And then he says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. On that day I will punish Israel for his transgression. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns on the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. He says, you have been in idolatry and even the horns of the golden bulls that you have in your temple, they will fall off and be destroyed. He goes on in verse 15, chapter three, verse 15. I'll strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish. The great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. He says, you have wealth and you have flaunted it and spent it. You have a summer home and a winter home, homes made of ivory and those great houses will come to an end. Continuing on in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are the mountain of Samaria. You oppress the poor and crush the needy. You say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. He says, you women of Israel, you are cows of Bashan. You are slothful and lazy. You sit around and demand that your husbands bring you wine to drink. Your laziness and sloth are going to be punished. There's injustice against you oppress the poor. You crush the needy. You have all of this wealth and yet you walk on those who don't. In verse 2, chapter 4, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Share this in a moment, but the Assyrians are the ones that God raises up to come in and to punish the people and tribes of Israel. And historians tell us that the Assyrians, they actually do haul their prisoners away with a fish hook in their lips, dragging them off. Amos says, The day of the Lord is coming. And he believes, Amos believes, 
That these Israelites, they're, they're thinking that God has blessed them, that God is providing for them, that God loves them and, and has shown his love to them through all of these blessings and that there is no curse to come. And so they anticipate the day of the Lord. They look forward to it. They're hoping for it. And in chapter 5, we see Amos tell them, you should not anticipate the day of the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It's as if a man fled from the lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his head against the wall and there a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You're anticipating this day of the Lord. You think it's a celebration and it is not. You're running from a lion and you meet a bear. He continues in verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, I hate, this is God speaking through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Even the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is not what you expect. You think that your offering, you think that your worship is going to make the day of the Lord a light day, but it is all darkness, it is all gloom, and there is no brightness in it. And then he gives the promise in chapter 6, He says there's going to be judgment and it's coming from another nation. Chapter 6, verse 14, Amos says, again, God speaking through Amos, For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebohamath to the brook of Arabah. The day is coming. The day is coming and it is not going to be. Starting then in chapter 7, Amos begins to give a picture of what the day of the Lord is going to look like for the Israelites. He has several visions there, starting in chapter 7. says the day of the Lord is going to be like a swarm of locusts that come against you. The day of the Lord is going to be like a scorching fire for you. The day of the Lord is going to be like a plumb line where you cannot, where you cannot meet the requirements of God. The day of the Lord is going to be like like you are a basket of overripe and rotting fruit. And then in Amos chapter 8, as he continues to talk about the day of the Lord, you find in verse 9 of Amos chapter 8, on that day, declares the Lord your God, I will make the sun Go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. 
I will turn your feasts into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for, only, for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, he says in verse 11 of chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This prophecy here in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. There's going to be a famine of the words of the Lord is exactly what happens as the Old Testament minor prophets close out. 400 years after the minor prophets, about, about six or 700 years from here, there's a silence. After that last prophet speaks, There's 400 years of silence from God until the last prophet, the one we see in the New Testament, John the Baptist, begins to speak and share of the coming king. Judgment is coming, God says through Amos. And in chapter 9, he speaks of the destruction of Israel, the physical destruction of Israel. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is Amos, an, a vision of Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. He said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Continues in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. For behold, I will command and I will shake the house of Israel among all of the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. The minor prophets are dark and gloomy. And Amos is maybe the darkest of them all. Death, darkness, destruction, desolation. All of the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, it says in verse 10. It's in that darkness, in that destruction, in that desolation, in that death that we finally begin to hear some words of hope. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Eight and a half chapters of doom and gloom and four verses of unbelievable hope. Four verses of promises, four promises that God gives here at the end of the book of Amos. It's a promise to the Israelites that there is a hope that's to come. In 700 years, there's a hope that's to come. Some of these prophecies will begin to be found there in the birth of a baby boy in a manger. But these four promises we find at the end of Amos, they're not just about the birth of Jesus. They're for us. They're for you and I as well. The reality of these promises are not to be found in the manger in Bethlehem, though that's where they begin. The promises are found for us. The reality of these promises will be found in the future. Let me look at these four promises. Verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Amos is saying, do you remember the kingdom of David? When everything was united, when, when everything was together, when, when the glory days of that King David? It was temporary, it was a booth, it was a tent. And I'm going to rebuild that temporary tent a king is going to come a perfect king and in the midst of destruction in the midst of this destruction that's coming from the Assyrians when they're going to haul you away with a fish hook in your lips in the midst of that destruction God is going to rebuild he's going to repair he's going to raise up the booth of David he's going to bring the king And he says, what you remember about that perfect king, David, that temporary king I'm going to bring, I'm going to rebuild it, and it's not going to be a temporary king. It will be the perfect king, and I will restore that which has fallen. He says the king is coming in verse 11, but in verse 12 he says, his people will be saved. That's the second promise. God's people will be saved. Verse 12 says that they may possess, he builds up this booth of David, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. All the nations who are called by my name. All the nations who are called by my name. Does that verse ring a bell to you? It might. We just came out of a series in Acts. And in Acts chapter 15, we find that council of Jerusalem. Remember, there's, there's an argument among the Jews whether or not the, the, 
the Gentiles can actually be a part of the kingdom, whether or not they need to be circumcised or not. And Peter is there, and Paul is there, and they, and they have this gathering where they come back to Jerusalem. And they have this, this talk, and, and Peter begins to share about how, yes, some of the Gentiles have come to faith. We've seen it. I, Peter says himself, I, I've been a part of it. Paul tells of his journeys that he's, as he's wandered out and began to teach in these Gentile churches. And there's been believers in those Gentile churches. And they come back, and they have this debate in Jerusalem about, is it going to be true? Is God really calling Gentile people to be believers? And they have this long debate. And finally, in Acts chapter 15, the, the leader of the church, James, the brother of Jesus, the, 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 the apostle, the disciple who is, who is the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, the head of the Jewish part of the new church. James, in Acts chapter 15, after they finish speaking, he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, Peter, has related how God visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, agreed, just as it is written, and James quotes Amos and says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from him of old. James says, this, this has been told to us long before we've gathered here in Jerusalem. All of the nations who have been called by my name are a part of my kingdom. The king is coming, it's promise number one. All of his people will be saved, it's promise number two. But in verse 13, we see another promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow from it. He says here, the curse from Genesis chapter three, the curse from the very beginning is going to be reversed. If you remember the curse in Genesis chapter three, when, when God comes and speaks to Adam and to Eve, he speaks to Adam and he says, he says, you're gonna work hard. You're gonna work hard all of your life. You're gonna have sweat on your brow. Farming is going to be hard for you. Weeds are gonna rise up. It's gonna be difficult for you. That's the curse that's put on the earth. That's the curse that's been given to man. And Amos says here, the curse is going to be reversed. He says, he says, on that day, the plowman is going to overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. He says, he says the, when it's time to plant, the guy that's still going to be harvesting when the planter gets there in the spring to take over. Harvest is still going to be happening. The reaper is still going to be bringing, because, because the curse has been reversed. The curse has been changed. I've lived in a farming community long enough to know that I do not want to be a part, I do not want to be a leader of farmers who move out of harvest mode to spring's work mode without a break in between. And those of you that are farmers' wives, <laughs> I'm sure you agree. But the curse is going to be reversed. 
The pressure of harvest, the hard work of spring is going to be different because the curse is gone. And harvest is going to last until planting. And the reapers are going to meet the plowers. The hardships that we know here on earth, they're going to be reversed. When the day of the Lord comes, when when the king takes over and all of his people are rescued, what we know now, the good that we know now will be better and the bad that we know now will be gone. God is going to establish his kingdom. He's going to establish his kingdom ultimately here on earth. And what we know will only be better. The king is coming. The people will be saved. The curse is going to be reversed. And then he says in verses 14 and 15, I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. This blessing, this kingdom will be forever. Never again will they be uprooted. Never again will they be hauled out by fish hooks in their lips. Never again will there be a curse where the countries come in and destroy the temple and march the people away. No nation can destroy what God has built and people will never be uprooted. His kingdom will be forever. Amos says. The worship team is going to come this morning. My hope, my hope as we walk through this series, my hope as we look at these prophecies, I hope, I hope this morning as you read through Amos, as you've looked at those doom and gloom promises, really, that God makes through Amos, my hope is as we look to the day of the Lord and the judgment that we'll rest in the promises that come through the baby in Bethlehem. That God sent his son to be the king. And there was a temporary moment there in history where Jesus comes and where Jesus, where Jesus becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for all who hope in his name, who all, for all who hope in Jesus Christ and place the full weight of their hope there, for all of those, these promises are true. The king is coming. His people will be saved. The curse will be reversed and his kingdom will be forever. Stand with me today as we close. There's a shred, there's a ray, there's a beam of hope even in the midst of doom and gloom and we come today to rejoice in that. Let's sing together. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant.
chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and the proof, through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for coming.